if you're buying or selling, what are you actually buying or selling? Make sure that you have that description. Welcome to the Insurance Refocus Podcast, where we're highlighting real agent stories and how they are innovating to respond to the changes and challenges happening in the independent insurance industry. My name's Lindsay, and I can't wait to introduce you to my amazing co-host, who just so happens to be my mom, Carrie Wallace. Mom, how are you doing today? I am having a fantastic day, Lindsay. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm so excited. We just before jumping on this call just figured out that we'll both be in Columbus, which is where we lived for 20 years, unfortunately in December, but we'll both be there at the same time. How funny is that? I know. I'm so glad we do a podcast together so we can actually figure out when we're going to cross paths. It's like the craziest (laughs) thing. Well, today I'm super excited. Speaking of Columbus or Ohio in general, um, I get to welcome someone that I've known for many, many years, Mr. George Pilot. He is a partner with Gertzberg Licata, which is a, a law firm near Cleveland. Is that correct, George? Yes. We're in independence. We're just... 10 miles, not even 10 miles south of Cleveland. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being our guest, George. For the people who don't know you and haven't known you for many, many years, would you mind giving us a little bit of your background, your connection to the insurance industry and all that good stuff? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a lifelong Clevelander, born and raised in the Northeastern Ohio area. Uh, I've been an attorney for 36 years now, which long, long time. Um, but I grew up in an insurance family. Uh, my dad was an independent agent and my brother's currently an independent agent. And as I often tell people, I'm the black sheep of the family because I decided to become an attorney instead of going into insurance uh, with my dad or, or with my brother. Um, but I have done a lot of work in the insurance industry and with insurance agents, agencies and brokers uh, for more than 30 years, um, going back to uh, errors and omissions defense uh, errors and omissions coverage analysis, sometimes when an agent would get a reservation of rights letter in, in litigation, um, helping an administrative, and, and some of this I still do, but administrative proceedings before the Department of Insurance, but then also kind of evolved into helping insurance agents um, as part of their business, where they're, let's say, buying or selling an agency, buying or selling a book of business, looking to um, cluster with maybe another agent or agency. Um, assisting with producer or solicitor agreements, um, employment agreements, all areas of their business. But I have had a lot of involvement with just a lot of agents over 30 plus years. Uh, Been active with the insurance board in Northern Ohio, uh, here in the Northeast Ohio area. Um, Actually helped them form that in 2001. Uh, have been counseled to them and presented at some of their conventions, panel discussions, and the like. You and I have been on panel discussions together. Uh, so that's generally been my background as it relates to insurance. Um, you know, we talk about MA and other things. I mean, I've got four deals going on right now, you know, mm. for agents that are buying or selling or, or, or in that process. So um, I do quite a bit of that. Not the only thing I do, but I've been involved with insurance agents for many years. So do you specialize just in insurance agencies or you have clients that are other businesses as well? 
I I have clients that are in other businesses, um, whether they may be contractors, other professional services. I mean, just different kinds of clients. But I do a fair amount that relates to insurance, uh, as does our firm. I mean, some of our other people uh, are involved with insurance companies, insurance agents, and and the like. So so very often, um, agents use their local lawyer. Um, someone that they use for everything um, that may or may not understand their business when it comes to buying and selling an agency. And, you know, from my vantage point, that becomes pretty tricky. You know, it, it can cause the deal to slow down. It can cause a lot of different challenges. So I would love to hear from your perspective, what, um, differentiators there are when someone gets the business and understands it, helping in an M&A transaction specifically, why that's so crucial? Well, I think it it is important because you do have some unique features of the insurance industry where, you know, they're dealing with their commit, almost all their income is commission income that's coming from an insurance carrier based on a contract with that carrier uh, resulting in an appointment. So you, you have that feature that's an aspect of that of their transaction because anyone who's looking to buy or sell either needs to get approval from a carrier or maybe get an appointment or they're talking about rolling a book of business. Things that oftentimes of people who are not involved in the insurance industry do not have a good grasp of those concepts and how that works as it relates to an M&A transaction. I mean, sometimes you do have an M&A third-party consents that are required for certain things. But I think when you're talking about the insurance industry and the agency having contracts with carriers and the appointments, that's one aspect that is unique. And where um, having a good handle on that can help in the transaction because you're not coming up to the last minute and then suddenly you're having to get something done with a carrier that could delay the closing or increase your cost or your time. Um, also, with especially with because it's commission income, you're dealing with you may be selling a policy today. You're not getting paid on it until, you know, at least 30 days from now or, or a, another month, um, which run then you run into timing issues with payables, with receivables, with how are those aspects going to be handled in the uh, transaction documents. And then, of course, there's contingent commissions. You know, you could be doing a deal in June. We got to make sure that you're protecting at least a part of that if you can in the transaction, even though it's not being paid until many, many months later, uh, depending on the performance. So you do have those things that affect the transaction that are unique to insurance agents and agencies um, that are different than others. Hey guys, if you're looking to improve your bottom line, allow your team to operate efficiently and really improve that customer retention, I believe you should check out Ascend. Ascend is the all-in-one insurance payment solution. They are focused on streamlining your invoicing, premium financing, accounting, and they'll even make your carrier payables for you. They are taking agency bill and making it as easy as direct bill. That is a game changer. They integrate with all of the major AMS players. And here's the best part. 
It's free. There is no subscription, no cost to you. They allow your customers to pay how they want. If you are interested in improving your efficiency, go visit ascend.com backslash insurance refocused and let them know that we sent you. Totally. I worked in an association. I've been in the industry for about three going on four years now. Um, and my first two and a half years were in an association. And now I work for a like a network brokerage type of organization. It's Indium. Um, you're in Ohio. You're probably familiar. Yep. And um, so when I started helping out with like book rolls, book transfers, going from being in the brokerage to a subcode to a direct when people sell their business and it goes, you know, it's so complicated. I can't imagine like being an agent who's never done something like that before and not going to a lawyer or someone who knows what they're doing. I think it's so important that they like your background that you have with your dad having an agency, your brother having an agency would be so important in that in that role. Well, and and as I said, and I and I and I have a special place in my heart for agents. I always have. I mean, and and I always will. Um, back when I was doing, you know, ENO defense, when I did more of it, you know, I talk about you know my agent. I mean, because. You know, again, I was their advocate, their counsel, but I mean, I I, I was their person. They were yeah. my agent as I saw them. So, um, yeah, I've always had that uh, as as part of my business, and and I think it helps me too because I always want to learn more too when I talk right. with agents or agencies. You know, be, learn more about the business because that helps me in in what I do. Yeah, uh, I mean, definitely does. So when you became a lawyer and started practicing this type of law, did do you ever look back on things that like you saw your dad or your brother doing and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. Like, do you ever pull inspiration from those kind of things? Oh, listen, I, I do. Um, I definitely do. Um, and, and again, as you start off as you're younger, you know, my dad was, was Stephen Pilot. And so it was, you know, Stephen Pilot Insurance, and he would call it policies with PS. So policies from SP with PS, personal service. And I saw, you know, how hard he worked and, and how much personal attention he gave to all of his clients. And, and truly, I have tried to replicate that as, as best I can um, with my clients to, you know, again, give them that personal service um, instead of just farming them off to another associate or paralegal. I mean, I try very much to work with them individually. Um, I, I, before the pandemic, you know, was a big proponent of getting together in person anytime that I could. Um, now, of course, we rely a lot more on video and, and Microsoft Teams and Zoom and all that. Um, but I still try to, to give that personal touch, you know, that if we're going to have uh, a conference call and say, can we do Zoom or Teams? Because then at least we've got, we're seeing each other and, and we're having a little more of a connection. Um, so, oh, definitely um, saw that that inspiration. And I, and I talked too about, and I have done this talk about, you know, just the, the level of professionalism, you know, that my dad showed in in his interaction with other agents, with company representatives and, and the like that I think uh, definitely has helped shape me. Cool. What do you think that the like top three things that agents reach out to you for your help with are? 
Uh, well, definitely the number one thing is is M and A. I mean, definitely when they're looking to buy or sell uh, an agency or a booker business, um, we, we do run into sometimes with uh, that's by by and large that's far and away the number one aspect that that I'm number one area in which I'm dealing with agents or agencies. Uh, I think another one producer and solicitor agreements. You know, where they're maybe bringing on someone who has a book of business or maybe doesn't have a book of business. How do we deal with that? You know, who has ownership of the book if they're bringing it over? I mean, those and again, those are unique to um, to agencies uh, as opposed to other types of businesses Um, and just general employment law issues that occasionally come up with staff. Um, but we do think we see sometimes those. So those are the, the probably the most important. Um, other other times we'll have, uh, let's say, an administrative action or an inquiry that comes up from the Department of Insurance, a complaint that may get filed. That's not as often, but I mean, certainly that happens. And I've represented uh, a number of agents with the department. Uh, and then typically real estate, you know, they may have a leasing question, maybe they're looking to buy or sell a building, they're looking to lease new space, um, those things. But but definitely emanated by, by far and away the most. So, so George, you mentioned one that's been on the minds of many agents over the past, uh, probably years, but definitely over the past 12 to 18 months, which is non-compete, non-solicit, non-piracy. Can you... Um, and, and when it comes to producer agreements or employment agreements inside the agency, we all know that uh, the people who are inside the agency are a valuable. Uh, they're number one; they're the most expensive part of the agency, and they're also the most valuable part of the agency. And if there are contracts in place, they might be the biggest risk inside the agency, especially when there's a transition. So there's a lot of talk about non-solicit, non-piracy, non-compete. Can you talk to that? Like what is, um, you know, actually can't be enforced and what are the things that everyone should have in their employment agreements? Well, and I think we we when we talk about it, we talked about them generally as what we call restrictive covenants. So you're saying you know some type of covenant, meaning an agreement, promise that restricts certain type of activity. When you're talking about you know start at one end, the non-compete, non-competition, which basically says a person will not engage in a certain type of business for a particular period of time in a specific geographic area. Most of the time, when you're talking about insurance agents, you're talking about licensed professionals, most of the time, your your classic non-compete is not going to be enforceable because it is very difficult to try to convince a court that a licensed professional should not be able to practice their craft, their trade for a period of time in a particular area. Um, what we usually look for then is a non-solicitation, and that gets to whether or not a person can solicit or try to take particular accounts or clients um, of the agency. Where it gets a little tricky is where you have those accounts or clients that, let's say, belonged to the agency before the producer uh, uh, was there, or those that the producer has generated on his or her own while employed by the agency. So the question then becomes in the agreement, who owns the, the, the piece of business? And we usually try to specify that. Um, but then the, the question become, well, what can you restrict them from doing? And most of the time you can restrict the person from soliciting. 
um, or you know, prospecting or trying to do something active to take the business from away from the agency when the person leaves. What we also sometimes put in there is a, is something that they well that they will not accept any business from. So because we have many agents that let's say they've left an agency, they start taking clients, and they say, well, I didn't solicit, you know, Kerry Wallace to be my client. Kerry said, George, I want you to be my agent. Well, George didn't solicit me, but I want to work with George. So we we craft those in a, in a particular way to try again try to. Um, limit the ability of, of the agent leaving the agency to be taking business with him or her. The non-piracy mostly deals with employees. You know, if you're dealing with employees of the agency, again, trying to restrict the agent from being able to take uh, a CSR with him or her when they may move. Um, so those are kind of the different aspects. You look to build those in as, as much as you can. Um, I mean, again, certainly if you're from the agency side, you want to make those as restrictive as you think you can. Um, from the agent or producer side, you either don't want to agree to them or want them as loose as can be. Um, all of those, though, under the law, they're, they're evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Um, there is no real hard and fast rules to say, oh, listen, if there's a non-solicit for one year, it's absolutely enforceable. Or if there's a non-solicit for two years, it's absolutely not. I mean, you're, you're, there is going to be some flexibility. The courts are going to look, if they have to get to court, are going to look at them more specifically. Generally speaking, I would say if you're, if, if you're looking for a non-solicit properly drafted for about a year, that's generally going to be enforceable. Once you get beyond that, you really start to get into an area that it's likely not going to be enforceable. You see some asking for these five-year non-solicits. They can ask for it. I mean, again, the courts likely will not uphold something for that length of time. Sure, because people have to make a living. Like this is, yeah. Right. So, you know, you're talking about a little bit of owning the book of business and owning the accounts. So another thing that comes up in my line of work a fair amount is a scenario where you have an agency, they have a producer and they own a portion of their book of business. Tell me, tell me in your, you know, opinion, the pitfalls with that kind of language in a contract that isn't, um, that that causes challenges when an agency goes to sell. I I guess I'll phrase it that way. And, And that's, and that's where, that's the key piece. I mean, where they're going to sell and because you have, um, and that's part of, again, the due diligence process that both sides are going through either you know, early on before they get maybe to the point of a purchase agreement or even a letter of intent, where because if you're the buyer, you, know, you want to know for sure, well, am I, are you able to sell me all of these various accounts? And so the pitfall there is, well, if you have to get approval or have the producer, let's say, who has ownership in a part, be a party to the agreement. So you're dealing with either one of two things where let's say either that producer becomes a party to the agreement or the selling agency perhaps has to buy out that producer so that the agency then owns the entire book that they're looking to sell to the buyer. So it, but to to your point about, you know, owning of it, um, there is no real ownership issue that's implied. I mean, it's one of those things we absolutely specify in an agreement because, 
a producer may say, well, that's my account. Well, the agency name is going to be on the policy. The agency name is going to be on the commission statements, regardless of whether there may be a sub-producer code or something else that the insurance company does to split out those commissions. I mean, you have the agency owns the, the book or, or the account, unless there is something that's in writing between the agent and the agent or producer and the agency about ownership. So that's why we look to specify that when we're doing a producer agreement, who actually owns whatever business is being produced, because then you could potentially avoid that pitfall or at least clarify the issue before you get to the point of, of it potentially slowing down or increasing the cost of a merger and acquisition. Is that normally something that you would go through and do diligence? Like, is that, do you have like a checklist of different things that you run through and that's just one of the things you do? Well, one of the things, a lot of times we, as the attorneys are not involved um, in, in a oh, lot of the due diligence. Okay. I mean, certainly we'll talk with clients and one of the things that we talk with is, okay, if, again, if you're buying or selling, what are you actually buying or selling? Make sure that you have that description of it. Let's assume it's an asset sale with a book of business. You know what? You know what accounts are listed as owned by the agency that would be transferred as part of the transaction. So you're going to ask whether there's, and typically the agents understand this, I think, but we we certainly will counsel them. Make sure that you know for certain what you're buying, especially if you're on the buyer side, that you're really able to acquire everything you think you are. And again, as for the seller, it's like, well, are you able, if you're telling, and I had this come up in a transaction where there we were in the negotiation process, we had gotten almost to a letter of intent and found out that there was a problem with the agency that said that they owned this entire book of business and in fact, they did not, that there was another person affiliated with the agency that actually had a claim to ownership. It ended up torpedoing the deal because we could not bring everybody together. Point being, you, you look at, you definitely look at that and carry to your point, you know, it can become a pitfall um, in, in the agreement. So you are always talking with the clients, make sure you're clear about what it is that you're looking to, what, what is the heart of the transaction? What are you buying or selling? if it's an acquisition, I mean, versus a merger. So oftentimes when I'm working with an agency and they find an agency that they want to buy or a book of business that they want to buy, and they they have this expectation that things are going to move fast, everything's going to go smoothly, and um, it's we've done this a million times, so it'll be fantastic. I would love to dig into that a little bit. So number one, what is the typical time frame that it takes to get from when it hits your desk to an agreement in place typically? Tell me that first and foremost. And then what are some of the things an agency owner as a buyer and a seller could do to expedite that process? Like what are some of the things that slow it down that could be avoided? Well, I think when you we'll start with the second part first, I think there's uh, making sure that you have, if, if you're thinking, and this is good business practice, regardless of whether you're thinking of buying or selling, but looking to make sure that you have agreements in place with your producers, solicitors, key employees, so that whoever may be looking to buy you or acquire you at some point, 
you know, you know that, okay, I've got these various contracts, these agreements, which can be transferred as part of potentially transferred as part of the uh, transaction, especially as it relates to maybe any restrictive covenants that are in that, that you, so your buyer knows, well, even if so-and-so doesn't come with me, that person's restricted from, let's say, trying to take the accounts. So having those contractual pieces in place is is always a good idea up front because that helps make things go smoother because you're you're not potentially scrambling to try to put together an agreement with a key producer who understands that maybe they have a little bit of leverage now in in what they may be trying to get out of the uh, situation uh, when the owner is looking to sell. Um, so typical timeframes, again, some of these depend on, and I hate to always give the lawyers the answer, it depends, but it does depend certainly on complexity of the transaction. You know, are we talking about, you know, how big is the agency? How many people are there? How many different carriers may be involved where you have to get, a, a, you know, a consents or appointments or things of that nature? Are they in more than one state? You know, what are their lines of business? You know, how many of it's just a, a property casualty agency that's doing, you know, personal lines and commercial, maybe little or no life or health or little or no employee benefits, or they're not doing any risk management fee services. I mean, those are going to certainly complicate and, and the, uh, the transaction as well as the amount of time that it may take. Um, I will tell you, I, I would say you could have uh, transactions that are done, let's say, within six months or less. Sometimes, if you have relatively straightforward, if it, you know, again, um, agency that has, let's say, property casualty agency, maybe not another, not a lot of other lines of business. Maybe they've only got a couple of producers that are involved. Uh, maybe one location, so we're not talking about all over the, you know, multiple locations and places. Um, those potentially can be done in six months. I mean, I think, or less, perhaps. Um, some of that depends, too, on whether the potential buyer has financing in place or how the financing is going to work. Because there are those things, you know, I tell people, if if I'm in control of more aspects of the transaction, I can give a better idea of time frame as well as cost. When you're dealing with third parties or other people that you have to rely on in order to do things to make the transaction happen, that's where it can become a little more of a wild card, um, especially if someone, let's say, has to get maybe some of the some or all of the financing is coming from a bank. I don't have any control of how quickly the bank's going to do, you know, go through their underwriting or you know their process of loan approval. Um, so those things can impact it. What's the longest you've seen a transaction take? <laughs> uh, probably. Uh, well, I, I I will say started with one agent. I think the longest one that I could think of was probably two years, um, Ooh, and that was where they were far along with with one with one potential buyer, um, and that kind of fell apart and cratered, and then we ended up getting another buyer. Involved. I mean, it, it it took from the time that they the agency had decided that they really wanted to to sell. So the time that we actually closed the deal was probably more than two years. Um, but again, that was involving two, one, one deal that kind of fell apart. And although that had taken a, a, probably a year before it, it, had, it had fallen apart. And then the other one took, again, a, a significant amount of time, partly because it was a little bit different structure of the deal. But that's the longest. But I, I mean, 
I mentioned I've got several on, you know, that are ongoing right now. One of which I'm I'm working on that we're we're looking to close. Uh, all th- if all things go well, we'll be closing January one. Um, I think the letter of intent was signed back in um, July, so hmm. you know we're it, it's moved along pretty well. Yeah, that's definitely. What is the ideal time for clients to get you involved? And do they normally get you involved at that time? I think really, and and because there'll be there'll be a lot of times, for example, I heard an agent call, oh, oh you know, um, I just signed this NDA with this agent, you know, and we're, when we're talking about potentially, you know, selling or we're looking to buy. I really would like to be involved before they sign anything at all. I sign an NDA because I've seen the non-disclosure agreements sometimes that I don't think protect people well enough. And I understand it's just a preliminary piece, but you still want certain protections over your information um, and how those are put together. So that's certainly the the best time that would be best practices. Absolutely at the time that someone, let's say, has a letter of intent or wants to put a letter of intent together. Um, because even though, and everybody says, well, they're not binding. Okay, yes, but they're pretty much understood to be the framework of the transaction. You don't want to be making big changes um, right. after you sign a letter of intent because it's going to slow things down. And when you slow things down or make it more complex, you're driving up cost. I mean, because the more we have to do things to, let's say, change parts of the agreement or renegotiate things, it, it adds time and it adds expense. So uh, that's the ideal time to get to get uh, a, a lawyer involved. So not only can it slow things down, though, but if you start making changes from the letter of intent to the agreement, it could actually make the deal fall apart because trust is broken. You know, here's what we actually said as a frame nerd. Here's what you're now saying now that you have legal advice. It could be a it could be a super big issue. So I agree with you a thousand percent. And make sure that the person you get involved understands your business. I mean, I've seen some agreements, George, that make my my toes curl a little bit, like a multiple of premium has been in an agreement that I've seen. It's like not, and that's clearly someone just didn't know the language, you know, like that's not a thing. Like I don't even like multiple of revenue. Now, if you're talking multiple of premium, it's not even money that the agency owner has control over. So anyway, my point is get people involved that understand it. So you don't put yourself in a situation. It's that the, unnecessarily could blow up a deal because you didn't have the right advice. I mean, that is, that's the key, right? Well, and, so, and that's one of the reasons why I'll say that I, when, when agents will talk to me, so I'm thinking about buying or selling or thinking about selling, let's say, I said, well, do you have a valuation? One of the first questions I ask, do you have a valuation? Let's say, well, no, but I think it's like this, or my accountant says, I said, and I, and I tell every one of them, get someone who can provide yeah. you a valuation because yeah. at least you're talking about a range of what, you know, what the reasonable value of the agency could be from people who know agencies. Uh, and that's either you or, you know, some other folks, but I, I, I yeah. do say that a lot because they got to have that because then you have, again, if they're talking a multiple of, of commission even, which I know is not used much anymore, but that's still not, probably not right. giving you a good enough indicator of what a fair value is. So I often say that to folks, get get evaluation from someone as a starter. 
Yeah. Well, George, it has been a pleasure having you on here. I love that you hit some major highlights of what agents need to think about from a legal perspective in running their business. If some of the agent listeners want to reach out to you and, and get a hold of you, how can they find you? Well, they can find me um, uh, on LinkedIn, for example. I've got a profile on, li- on LinkedIn um, or at our uh, the firm website, which is uh, GertzbergLocata.com. And I'll let you, you can post that somewhere or I'll spell it, but we will, uh, we will, but that's on the, on the website or LinkedIn. Those are the best ways, or give me a call. Um, 216-573-6000. That's my phone number. Be happy to talk with, with anyone. Um, but again, LinkedIn or the website, that'll, that'll give you all my contact information. Awesome. Well, I hope you stay warm in all that snow. We're going to hope that it stays up north and we uh, we continue to have some sunshine down here. How about that? You can always come and visit us, George. You know, that, I, you that know, would be I'm a great thing. I'm looking forward to that sometime because uh, <laughs> we, I was in Hilton Head about a year and a half ago and it's like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna look up where, where Carrie lives and come down and hang Please. out for a bit and, uh, Please. You know, yeah. and, and share some more war stories. But but and, and thank you too for having me on because um, I really enjoy talking about these things. And again, even the questions that you bring up that make me think of things that again are on agents' minds because I know you're you're dealing with them all day, every day, um, and and we deal with them, you know, when they have legal legal things that are coming up, um, but not to the extent that you do. So I really do appreciate they having the chance to talk with you on this. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to seeing you in the new year and maybe we'll do a couple more uh, webinars together. You never hey, know. Great. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, Lindsay, it's nice meeting you too. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Insurance Refocus podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review so you'll never miss us. Want to learn more about how Agency Focus can help you grow your agency? Head to agency-focus.com or email Carrie directly at carrie at agency focus.com. If you need to get in touch with me, feel free to shoot me an email at lindsay at agency-focus.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week.